Okay, the reading this morning is from Luke 15, 11 through 32. Uh, it's on page 874 in the Pew Bibles. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. For he was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. So his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who had devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kate. I got to switch things around. I apologize. Um, the, I, I just want to acknowledge from the jump here this morning uh, that this tool right here has been really uh, a really helpful way of helping me understand this parable in, in a fresh way. I've, it's been formative for me, and I have depended on it a lot. And so if you've read this book, you'll probably hear some familiar themes or ideas. This is called The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. I have one copy here that I'm going to put down here on the stage. You can run now and get it if you really want it, or you can wait until afterwards and the first one to get it, it's all yours. But this uh, has been a life-changing book and resource for me, and I hope whichever one of you bull rushes the stage to get it first, it will be life-changing for you as well. Um, good stuff right there. Prodigal God. Uh, okay, well, I don't know if you know this or not, but we are within driving distance of one of the country's largest, if not the country's largest, buffet. 
Uh, many of us have probably been there. Anybody know what we're talking about here? Yeah, Shady Maple. Shady Maple. I opened up their website this past week, and it said this. Discover the experience of dining at Lancaster County's largest smorgasbord, featuring 200 feet of deliciously authentic Pennsylvania Dutch cooking. At Shady Maple, some of Lancaster County's finest cooks prepare all your favorite Pennsylvania Dutch foods, as well as some exciting new dishes. Whoa. New and exciting Dutch dishes, you say? Color me intrigued. Uh, and I do love me s some Shady Maple, but that bit about the finest cooks is a little sus. I think. Sus is what my kids say, and they're not here to uh, help me know if I put that in the right context or not, but I think so. Well, Luke's gospel boasts the world's largest buffet of teaching on how Jesus and food intersect with mission. For the last four weeks, we've been treating the gospel of Luke like a smorgasbord. We've walked by different texts, and each week uh, we've seen different ways different patterns that Jesus demonstrated in his life where food and mission mix. Each, step along the, each stop along the buffet has been a slightly different take on how Jesus incorporated care and mission around the dining room table. And so we are going to wrap this series up this morning. And just a quick caveat, if you're new to Trinity or if you're like your first time here or it's your first couple of weeks here, this is not normal. N normally, we just work sequentially through books of the Bible, but sometimes we come to the Bible with a question. We say, what did Jesus think about food? And so we kind of work in and out of different texts of Luke, um, but normally we're just working sort of sequentially. So next week, we get back into our normal series. We've been working through 1 John together, so come back next week and you'll get more of like a, a flavor of what we normally do here. Uh, 1 John next week. I think what was most memorable about Jesus is not what he ate, but who he ate with. Sometimes it's with down and outers, sometimes with up and outers, and we see a similar pattern continuing today in Luke 15. Look at verses 1 and 2. We didn't read these earlier, but look at verses 1 and 2 real quick. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. It is in response to this statement that they make, this man receives sinners and eats with them, that leads Jesus to tell three similar but distinct stories to these, to these religious elite people. So these, uh, these two verses are like an important lens through which to understand our text for today that Kate read for us just a minute ago. If we forget the context, if we forget to read these stories through the lens of verses 1 and 2, we'll lose sight of the true meaning of what Jesus is getting after here with these three stories, and especially with the one that we're going to focus in on today, the prodigal son. Well, after these two verses, all of the rest of this chapter is Jesus' explanation of what is really happening when he is welcoming sinners and eating with them. The first answer is in verses 3 to 7. Jesus' receiving sinners is like a shepherd who finds a lost sheep, and then he celebrates with all of his friends. And then in verses 8 to 10, another story, Jesus receiving sinners is like when a woman finds a lost coin and then celebrates with all of her friends. In verses 11 to 32, Jesus gives his third answer. When he receives sinners and eats with them, it is like a father who finds his lost son and celebrates with a party full of good food and drink and music and dancing. So all three parables have this in common, being lost and being found, followed by rejoicing with friends. Look at verse 6. Rejoice with me, 
for I have found my sheep, which was lost. Verse 9, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin, which I had lost. Verse 24, this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to be merry. A lost and found sheep and a party. A lost and found coin and a party. A lost and found son and a party. That's good news for me and for you this morning. Without the Father's seeking, we never would have been found. And without our being found, we wouldn't be at the party. Have you ever wondered why these guys ended up killing Jesus? Why? I mean, he was healing diseases. Occasionally, he would raise people from the dead. He was doing some crazy, amazing stuff. And yet, they wanted him dead. Why? How does that even make sense? Luke 15. Luke 15 is why they wanted Jesus dead. It plays a huge role in their pursuit of his crucifixion. It's because Luke 15 flattens every single person on the planet with the exact same need. You're not less needy than the worst sinner. And you're not more needy than the next sinner. There is no more level ground than at the foot of the cross. Today, unlike previous weeks, we don't find Jesus eating a feast, but telling a story with a feast as the central point of tension in the plot of the story that he's telling. And I think it's likely that this story is one of the main things that got Jesus killed. It's the point of tension because the undeserving son eats steak at the table while the deserving son refuses. And we're going to see why here. And while the table represents the point of tension in our story, our minds, I think probably for most of us, when we think of the parable of the prodigal son, if we are familiar with it, our thoughts immediately go to the flight and then return of the younger son. But like Ethan Crymeyer highlighted for us this past week in our community group, maybe you guys stumbled on this same thing in your community group, uh, he said most of us probably tend to forget or minimize the role of the older brother in the story. Our minds go to the prodigal son, right? The younger brother, the younger son. But we dilute the power of the story if we focus only on the younger brother. This story isn't about a son. It's a story about two sons. I mean, Jesus says that explicitly right there in verse 11. A man had two sons. It's no accident that Jesus tells a story about two sons, because remember the lens that we're looking at the story through. There are two groups of people sitting there with Jesus that he is teaching. One of the sons will represent one group, and the other son will represent the other group. So you've got the religious elites represented by the elder brother, and the rebellious sinners represented by the younger brother. The religious, the, the religious outcasts, the tax collectors and sinners, relate to the younger brother. They were indifferent to the moral laws of the Bible. They did not pursue the ceremonial purity followed by the Jews of the day. They drifted away just like the younger brother does in the story. But the religious elite, on the other hand, the scribes and the Pharisees, are represented in the story by the elder brother. On the contrary, or contrary to the younger son, they held firmly to traditional morality. They studied the scriptures. They obeyed them. They stayed near to the safety of morality like the older brother. But if you recall, the repentant, rebellious son makes it to the party while the smug, rebellious son does not. This is why Luke 15 gets Jesus killed. The scribes and the Pharisees understood what Jesus was implying. 
and it was scandalous. Tim Keller has said in that book right there, and my experience is actually the same, that for many years when I heard this story, I would imagine Jesus' listeners right there maybe with glistening eyes, tears rolling down their cheeks, celebrating the fact that God always welcomes them and loves them no matter what. That's sort of the lens that I read the story through. But this is to oversimplify and to over-sentimentalize the parable, I think. The aim of this story was not rebellious sinners, but the religious sinners who appear to do everything that the Bible requires. This is what so infuriated the, uh, the Pharisees. It was a huge knock to their pride. So here's today's big idea, like one portable thing to take with you that will help you make sense of this text. It's this. The rebellious and the religious equally need to be needy. The rebellious and the religious equally need to be needy. And we'll see this story play out in two acts with a, a couple of chapters in each act. And remember, we are meant to contrast the rebellious brother with the religious one. And we're supposed to identify with one or the other. And maybe you'll find yourself identifying with a little bit of both. I do. So the first act, you could title it this, Relentless Love for Rebellious Sinners. Relentless Love for Rebellious Sinners. Here's part one. I don't know if we're adequately shocked about the younger son's request to his father there in verse 12. Do you see it? He says, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. So think about this like in 2022 for a second, like what this might feel like and look like. When do you receive an inheritance? What is like the trigger to transfer those assets from one person to you? Death, right? That's when we get the inheritance. But here we find the younger son asking for it now. Give it to me now. So for this son to ask for the inheritance now was to wish his father out of existence. He wanted the father's stuff, but not the father. How heartbreaking. Think how, how absolutely gut-wrenching this would feel if you were in the father's shoes. Maybe some of you have been. How hollow you would feel. Despondent. You changed his diapers. You fed his belly. You clothed his body. You played with him. You cared for him. You gave your very life to him. And now, it's nothing to do with you. Whew. But the father gives him over to his desires. He splits his estate. In these days, the firstborn would get a third of the estate, and the rest of the siblings would split. Now, the, the firstborn would get two-thirds of the estate, and the rest of the siblings would split the last third. So he takes his third, and he rides off into the sunset. Somehow, the, the father muscles up under the loss of honor, and the enormous pain of rejected love, and sells his hard-earned assets for his rebelling boy. Well, the son takes these assets, and before long, a famine hits, and he runs out of money. He runs out of livestock to sell for money, and he hits rock bottom, literally in a pen of pigs. He left a home full of love and care and food and servants, and now he is homeless, eating with a bunch of pigs. Now listen, he's not eating the pigs. This is not a bacon fest. It's not like r real good news for him here. He's so hungry that he's actually interested in eating the, f the, uh, the food of the pigs, the, f uh, the food that the pigs ate. Likely muddy corn stalks, cone stalks. Does anybody get cone stalks? Okay. You, you need to open up your uh, uh, Trinity uh, 
what do we say? The resources email that we send once a month. Cone? Cone? Nobody gets cone. All right. Man. Well, uh, this is embarrassing. I thought you were really going to pick up on this with me. When you see Janelle Lewis at Trunk or Treat dressed up as a cone stock, hopefully you will understand uh, a little bit more about what that means. Um, if you haven't opened up Trinity's resource roundup and clicked on the link that says something funny, click on that and it'll make more sense and make me feel a lot less awkward in this moment. Um, but it's in this moment where this son is eating these corn stalks that something interesting happens. Verse 17 says, he came to himself. This is when you and me are at our best. When we come to ourselves and we realize it is okay to not be okay. As long as that not okay, okayness draws us home to the Father. Heather Laraka took this uh, even a step further this past week in my C group, and I think she's right. If she's not right, talk to her and not me, okay? She said something like this, though. It's not just okay to not be okay. It's actually a blessing. I think Jesus confirms this in verse 7. He says, just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You want to spark joy in heaven and in you? Stop acting like you're okay. Come to yourself. Repent. Come home to the Father. So this not okayness drives the son's gaze home. And his heart longs for that home, that safety. I think this idea of home is so elusive to us as human beings. Like, if you had a, if you had a nice childhood, and you're traveling through your childhood neighborhood or whatever in the general area uh, where you went to school, or maybe you're traveling in an area where you went to vacation as a kid, maybe you're, maybe you're there traveling there with your spouse or something, don't you tend to want to drive by those old spaces and reminisce a little bit with them? Maybe you tell your spouse, right there, that's where I broke my arm. <laughs> Was bad, or or the field where you scored the winning touchdown. When we're down south, we'll drive our oldest two girls by the house that we brought them home uh, from the hospital to. It's a sweet sense of nostalgia, right? We enjoy doing that. So there is a sense in which we are all the younger brother here. We we have that sense and longing to go back somewhere, to home. He's wasted his time on fruitless pursuits of satisfying that need, quenching that thirst. And now he wants the real thing, though. He wants it back. He wants to go home. We're always wanting something as human beings. Longing for something that we have, like, a hard time defining, I think. Like an unrealized nostalgia. We, we strive for it, but never can actually quite reach it. Maybe you've experienced it when you've planned this elaborate holiday party with family and friends, and you long for those times to meet that hungry nostalgia in your soul. And they help. They do. It's fun. They bring joy, but the moments pass quickly, don't they? And even in the moments that you, you have that sense, those moments of joy and fun and nostalgia, you have that sense that it's even slipping away from you, even in the moment that you're enjoying the joy. You want time to slow, and you want to soak in that moment. But time quickly passes, and nostalgia passes, and you're on to the next thing. Home always seems to evade us. Why is that? Well, C.S. Lewis said this, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. The heartbeat 
of this book right here, friends, the heartbeat of it, is that your heart will never rest, never truly be at home until you come to the Father through Jesus Christ. There is a real rest there. That longing can be satisfied and only will be satisfied there. Out in that pigsty, the the son starts thinking of home. Even the servants have enough bread. He remembers that in verse 17. So he concocts a plan. He's going to humble himself, head bowed low, go back to his father. He's going to confess his stupidity. And he's going to ask to be restored to the house, but not as a son, as a servant, as a hired servant. He wants to go and pay his debt back, work his way back to sonship. This brings us to the final scene of this first act. This might be my favorite scene in the whole Bible. The young, younger son starts making his way back home. And then, way out in the distance, he becomes visible to the father, like a, like a tiny speck out on the horizon, trudging his way back home in shame. The father is not so busy with other stuff that he is not concerned with his alienated son. His, the father's affairs are in order. He is free to be concerned about his children. So before anyone else sees, the father sees. And when he sees, he breaks into a sprint. He just starts charging after his son. And you've got to imagine right now, the Pharisees are like, yes! They're thinking it's an angry sprint. They're thinking whatever that kid has coming to him, he deserves. He needs to be held accountable for his straying. The father is a middle-aged man, maybe older. The closer I get to middle age, the older my mind's eye picture of this man becomes. I always tell Miriam that as a 38-year-old, I am squarely in my early, late 30s. This guy is the owner of a significant estate. With servants at his beck and call, there's a certain dignity to maintain here, right? It would have been beneath a man like this to hike up his robes and bare his legs and just start booking it for his son. But he does. What? He does. With compassion, with tears, with laughter, joyful screams, so undignified. Unless, unless he's thrown decorum to the wind and he's given himself over to the overflowing joy of his heart. A wayward son returning. That's the way our father is about our coming home. What? And then like a football field or two away from the house, there is the most loving collision that you could ever imagine. Their bodies collide in this holy huddle of love and hug and kiss and affection. The stink of sin and pigs all over the sun and the father's son overwhelming the stench of sin. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that this is how the father comes at you? Christian, when you come to yourself and realize that you're not okay, and that it is a blessing to not be okay because we get a welcome like this. Behold, what manner of love is this? The son's got to be super confused at this point right? He had been expecting a speech, a lot of huffing and puffing, finger pointing, I told you so. So he's trying to like roll out his plan for restitution. See, what had happened was 
Remember, the son's plan is to return as a hired servant, not as a son. But the father ignores it. He turns over his shoulder, and he shouts down a servant in the distance. He says, quick, go into my closet. Get my best robe. Grab that ring that's on the dresser on your way out and bring them to me right now. What? This is insane. This is scandalous. This kid had taken the father's assets. He had squandered the father's money. He had scorned the father's name, mocked the father's honor. And in return, what does the father say? Robe, ring, stake. Stake is totally there. You can see it in verse 23, okay? The father takes on the weight of the offense himself, and he's like, I got this. He doesn't let his son carry the guilt. And more than that, he doesn't even let him sit in the shame, even for a blink. No shame, just son, not servant. Robe, ring, stake in my kid's honor. He's saying, I'm not waiting for you to pay off your debt. You couldn't. There's no probation. You don't have to execute on a series of demands to get back in my graces. I am covering your rebellion with my love and with my righteous robe. I'm simply taking you back with the status of son, family. Christians, are you hearing this? Does your heart soar within you when you know how the Father views you and embraces you? Well, a feast is prepared. Musicians are summoned. A perfectly marbled tomahawk ribeye is prepared. Evites are sent, and the party is planned. God delights in saving foolish rebels like this and like this. How lavishly and how scandalously we are loved. You need to know that God the Father is this way. He does not hold you at arm's length. Jesus didn't have to include these vivid, emotionally charged images here. But he did, because he wants you to feel something here about the way that he feels about you if you are in Christ. The gospel is too good to be true, fam. We just sung this. Hallelujah, what a day it will be. For at home with you, my joy is complete. As I run into your arms open wide, I will see my Father who's waiting for me. What is the lesson from Act 1? The Father pardons all kinds of sinners, even the worst. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Murderers, adulterers, cheaters, addicts, prostitutes, and anything else you can think of. There's a Father who wants you back. Won't you come? It's okay to not be okay. In fact, it's an advantage for you if you know you're not okay, as we will see with the older brother. Those who know that they're not okay and come to the Father through Jesus have already RSVP'd for the party at the end of time, and what a party it will be. Now, I want us to take careful note of the fact that it is not only the rebellious son who was lost and needy. The religious son is equally lost and needy. Listen, I think we can all get on board with showing grace and mercy to the down and outers. We love to hear the story of the redeemed stripper or a drug lord who has come to Christ. Man, that resonates with us. We love that. But I think it's harder for many of us to show love and grace toward the elder brother. And that tendency in us, ironically, is a character trait of the elder brother. God wouldn't extend grace to that smug punk. Well, who's the smug punk now? 
who thinks that they're a little bit more deserving of grace than the smug punk. Second act, relentless love for religious sinners. When the older brother learns about the way the younger son has been embraced, he is furious. But do you see how he finds out? I think this is funny. Look at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He heard dancing? That is some party, man. That is some party. Think of the most lavish wedding that you've ever been to, or maybe the most joyous wedding that you've ever been to, with a dance floor packed with smiling, laughing, carefree guests reveling in the joy of their friends and families. Big day. Hopefully, you've been able to make it to one or two like that. A little taste of heaven. That's the kind of, the, uh, kind of party the father is throwing for his returned rebellious son. And that's the kind of party that he's throwing for us, church. It's coming. The father lavishes love on those who have learned that it is okay to not be okay, who have turned the orientation of their souls to true home. But the older brother refuses to participate. I imagine just like the younger son, the father has his eye out for the older son. Where's he at? He's no respecter of persons, the father. He's not willing that any, that any should miss the party. The father scans the di- dinner table. No older son. He scans the dance floor. No older son. Where was he? Then he spots him, sulking, just outside the party tent. And like the younger brother, he goes to him. He pursues him relentlessly. He pursues the rebels and religious alike. And what does the son say? He says, look. And this is actually a little bit uh, sharper than it reads in the English. It's got the emotional weight of, look, you. That right there would have been where my kid saw the back of my hand, probably. Verse 29. Look, you. These many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. In other words, Dad, I have always been there for you, done the right thing by you. You've never even given me a goat, but you've given him a big old steak. What gives? He's most upset, I think, by the the lavish cost of everything. This is unconscionable to him. He has worked and worked and worked and worked, and he has earned what he got. But his brother, on the other hand, did nothing to earn what he was getting. In fact, the opposite. He had squandered it all away, and he's the one getting celebrated? What? There's no justice there. And just as a quick aside, maybe you feel in your heart the tension of that too. Truly on the surface, I can understand how it doesn't seem just. But in the Christian worldview, there's this amazing exchange that happens by faith, that makes this just. The scriptures tell us that Jesus is our true older brother. Romans 9. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Hebrews 2. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. As our older brother, he has stepped into our place. He has taken the penalty for our sin-stained robes and given us his perfect robes. The one who doesn't, uh, hold on, he has made us royalty by taking a crown of thorns and, and giving us his royal ring. So without this intervention, this exchange, the elder brother in this story could feel justified in some way, 
I think. But the fact of the matter is that God is just because he did punish our sins, but he punished Jesus instead of us. And he is just because he does reward righteousness, but he rewarded us instead of Jesus on account of Jesus' righteousness. But the elder brother just remained smug and indifferent. Still, the tender father responds, just like he did with the other lost son. Outside that party, he says something like in in verse 31, listen, I'm not going to disown your brother. He was dead and now he's alive. I'm not going to stop the party, but all that's mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate him. Come eat, come drink, come sing, and come dance with us. And we are left to wonder what the older brother did. It doesn't tell us. Which I think was Jesus' purposeful choice to provoke us to make our own choice. Will we join the party or no? Will we come to ourselves and realize that we're not okay? And that's okay. Jesus meets us in our not okayness and he redeems us. So we have two sons, one bad by any standard, one good. But it isn't the bad one who is alienated from the father. Both are, at some point in the story, alienated from the father. The father has to go out and invite each of them back in. Both sons are lost. But who enjoys the feast? The one who has it all together or the one who knows they don't have it all together? So the final act, not the final act yet. Sorry, I flipped my pages and they're, they're out of order here. The, the one who doesn't have it all together. That's the one who gets into the party. This must have made the Pharisees furious. The older brother isn't losing access to the father's table in spite of, in spite of his goodness, but because of his goodness, he's losing access If you can't see yourself as fundamentally sinful and broken, you'll never see yourself as fundamentally needy. I hope this can free us all from the lie that the surface is all that counts. How we appear. How can we coerce people, even the Father, into believing that we've made it and that we're okay? No. You leave those lies behind. They are stifling to true community. Come to your C groups as broken, not ballers. Can we just be broken together? Can we together cultivate a culture of transparency that says over and over, I'm a dreadful sinner and I need the risen Christ. It's okay to not be okay, to be needy. If you really believe this, it will come out in your conversation. Humility will mark your emails and your texts. You'll do conflict differently. The reality is that these two sons are very much alike internally, even if on the outside, they look very different. What did the younger son want most in life? He wanted the father's stuff without the father. What about the older son? Same. He wanted the father's stuff without the father. The younger brother took control by getting his inheritance and flying to Vegas right away, right? But the older brother took control by acting righteous on the outside to gain the father's acceptance and to gain the father's stuff. Here's what Tim Keller says. He says, the hearts of the two brothers were the same. Both sons resented their father's authority and sought ways of getting out from under it. They each wanted to get into a position in which they could tell the father what to do. Each one, in other words, rebelled, but one did so by being very bad and the other by being extremely good. Both were alienated from the father's heart. Both were lost sons. 
Do you realize then what Jesus is teaching? Neither son loved the father for himself. They both were using the father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, and serving him for his own sake. This means that you can rebel against God and be alienated from him either by breaking his rules or by keeping them all diligently. It's a shocking message. Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. The point is that the rebellious and the religious equally need to be needy. That's another way of saying every person ever needs the Father's forgiveness through Jesus Christ. If you don't know him, if you don't know what that means, if it sounds strange to you and you want to chat a little bit about what Christianity is and the central core messaging of it is, I would love to speak with you. It would be an honor. Just track me down afterwards. Well, we spent a month talking about food every Sunday. But food, food has kind of been a minor character in the text today. If you look carefully, it is an avenue of blessing and division in this story. But it's also going to be an avenue of blessing and division at the end of all of our stories. There is a great banquet already scheduled for the end of time. All are invited through this book. RSVPs have already been sent, but not all are coming. So let's talk super briefly about the guests at the final table. So the final act, relentless joy for redeemed sinners. We've talked a lot about how Jesus ate during these weeks, but there will be a day when many but not all of us will legit sit down with Jesus for a meal. I long for this day. It's going to be great. Jesus himself demonstrates the salvation he brings as a feast. Jesus, speaking of these last days, says this in Matthew 8. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Long before Jesus spoke those words, Isaiah predicted them. Let these words work their way down into your bones. As I read them, please imagine the Father running to meet you with the stink of sin all over you. See it in your mind's eye. And, and hollering to his servant to grab his robe and a ring for you, and then, and then leading you into his banquet. Imagine that as I read Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all the faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Whether or not you've ever realized or acknowledged it, this is the home that you have always longed for. That is that unquenchable thing that you can't ever quite get your mind wrapped around or get your hands wrapped around. This is the only thing that will fully and finally satiate that unrealized nostalgia. The feast at the end of our story in Luke 15 is a preview of this great festival at the end of history. On that day, our faith will turn to sight and our sight will turn to taste. I think this demystifies the reason for which we were all made. 
The climax of history isn't some disembodied, eternal, ethereal state. The end for which we were made is a feast with God himself as host and chef. I can't wait to eat with Jesus. So a couple of concluding applications, not just for our time together this morning, but for this whole series that we have walked through. First, be in awe of the Father and your seat at his feast. So the first application is simple. Look at the Father. Just look at him. Running after you. Embracing you. Kissing you. Soak in the safety of being loved by the Father. Even if your boss or your spouse or your coworker doesn't, your Father does. Saturate your soul with the ways of the Father. Watch him. Listen to him. Stand in awe of him. And let him overwhelm you with all that he is for you. Second application. Feast together while we wait for the final feast. This has kind of been most of the application throughout the series. I know I've quoted C.S. Lewis a bunch of times this series. I probably shouldn't apologize for quoting C.S. Lewis, but bear with me for one more time, one more quote here. Lewis was a, a, a part of a famous circle of friends. They called themselves the Inklings. Uh, one of the groups, oh, one of the people, one of the men in this group uh, was J.R. Tolkien. You're probably familiar with him. He's the guy who wrote The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. This group also included a man named Charles Williams, who died shortly after World War II. And after his death, Lewis wrote this. He said, In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want lights other than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition which each of us has of God. For every soul, seeing him in her own way, seeing God in her own way or his own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That says, an old author, is why the seraphim in Isaiah's vision are crying, holy, 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 to one another. The more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall have. According to Lewis, it took a community to truly know and appreciate Charles. How much more of that, how much more is that true about Jesus for us? It will take histories, community of Christians, and eternity and more to exhaust the glories of King Jesus. So why not get a jump now? Plan a meal with a friend or a neighbor this week. Eat like Jesus, because Christian, one day we get to eat with Jesus. Jesus.